0: Christ the Lord is risen today. Hallelujah! Sons of men and angels say, Ah! Hallelujah! Lives again our glorious King Hallelujah! Where all oh, death is now thy sting Alleluia Dying once he heart that same. Yuri, oh. redeeming work is done. Hallelujah. Fought the fight, the battle won. Hallelujah. Death in pain forbids him. said, hey.
1: He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow or bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Almighty God, whom truly to know is everlasting life, grant us so perfectly to know your Son, Jesus Christ, to be the way, the truth, and the life, that we may steadfastly follow his steps in the way that leads to eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.
0: Spoke away, you were singing over me, you've been so so good to me for I took a breath, you breathed your life for me, you've been so so kind. It's a mystery of this whole. Thessalonians 5:16 through 24. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, body, and soul be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. the house of zion we will sing with our hearts restored he has done great things we will say together we will feast and weep no more we will not be burned by the fire consumed by the flood, upheld, protected, gathered up. We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our heart restored. He has done great things, we will say to dark of night before the dawn. My soul be not afraid for the promised morning, on. Oh With our hearts restored, he has done great things, we will say together, we will feast and weep no more, every vow we've brought. God into the grave bind us together bring shalom we will feast in the house of Zion we will sing with our hearts restored he has done great things we will say. Two.
2: from Colossians 3 1 through 17 since then you've been raised with Christ set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God set your minds on things above not on earthly things for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God Christ who is your life appears then you also will appear with him in glory as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The word of the Lord.
3: Thanks be to God. To you, our morning song, praise to you our evening prayer we raise in lowly song your glory we adore O god now forever and forevermore this opens this um, poem hymn uh, from luther but originally from ambrose opens this chapter of life together um And this is our second Sunday in sort of walking through this book, Life Together, as sort of a structure for life together as the church. Bonhoeffer, as we talked about last week, starts this community out in Finkenwald, Germany Um, in the 1930s. It's this underground seminary while the Nazis are sort of gaining power throughout Germany. And Bonhoeffer trains these young ordinands, is what he calls them, these people who want to be pastors, in sort of what a robust Christian life would look like. And what he does, which is a lot different than my seminary, is sort of binds them together in a community under the word, is his phrase, under this address to us in Jesus Christ. And they work together, they pray together, they teach together, and they read scripture together, they live together. Now, the modern seminary uh, is nothing like that, as I can attest. You go, you live in your own home, you go to class, you go back to your own home, um, and you survive through the mechanisms of, of just your natural relations your wife or your family you may make some friends while you're there but for the most part it's like every other educational opportunity you have in America and this is true of of 1930s Germany where Dietrich Bonhoeffer is but he wants to do is he wants to change that because he thinks that in changing that he might find the renewal of the church now this is a very nerdy joke but Vin Scully, I thought I'd warn you in advance that, that like, one of you might get this. Um, Vin Scully uh, was this famous baseball announcer, one of my favorites. Um, uh, he called the Dodgers games from when they were in Brooklyn to at least till like, five years ago in L.A. So that's a long time. Um, but one time he was on a, a call on a game, and he had a guest. He normally called him by himself, but a guest asked him, he said, Vin, why are the games so long? And Vin looked at him straight in the face, and he said, batting gloves. Now, like I said, nobody will get this joke. If you go to a modern baseball game, now it's worse when you have to explain your own jokes, but I'll just do it for a second. When you go to a modern baseball game, what happens is, is in between every pitch, the batter steps out of the box, undoes the glove, redoes the glove, gets back into the box, and does it again. And so the games went up about 30 minutes to 45 minutes in the past Couple of years, and Vince Scully's reason for that wasn't commercials or pictures or anything else—just batting gloves. How does that relate to what we're talking about today? I didn't plan on that taking that long. Um, is is a, um, is that there was a? I was reading an uh, an article this week, and they made this joke that somebody said the greatest the uh, the thing that changed the Christian invention that changed the church the most in the past 200 years was when Henry Ford invented the automobile. Um, those jokes reminded me of each other. Maybe they don't remind you because it seems counterintuitive. What, how is that a Christian invention and how does that change the church in radical ways? Bonhoeffer in this chapter, The Day Together, assumes a community that is in some sense actually together. They can be together. They can interact together. When he writes the book Life Together, he takes sort of that monastic community he's trying to start for the renewal of the church and breaks it out so at least a family or a group of Christians could do it. But now, and this is true probably more in Chicago than here, but there were people who I went to high school with who went to church 45 minutes away or an hour away. There were um, high schools so large because of the ability of the automobile to bring us close together that the Christian contact of somebody I went to youth group with was even hard to find within those walls. You know, you put 4,000 kids in a high school, it's hard to find um, the other one. Uh, there were people who I think didn't know I was a twin. That's how big the high school was. So that gives you some sense of um, what's going on. They just thought there was two of us walking around the school, I guess, at all times. Um, but the point of, of what I tried to talk about in the meme email of looking at this chapter is that at some point, we might have to change our lives to have more robust Christian community. We pull ourselves apart in the distances we travel for work. We pull ourselves apart in the distance we travel to uh, recreate. We pull ourselves apart in the distances we travel to go to school. Um, it's it's not unique that that... In, it's very unique in the history of the world that like, we tell kids, and, and Kara, you're probably going through this, is like, well, don't worry, you have to leave your house and go find yourself and then figure out who you are, which like, for all the history of, of world history, you didn't leave or go anywhere, and now it's an almost mandatory rite of passage for our world today. Go away from your family. Go away from your church. Go and make something of yourself. This is sort of the way in which we help. And so what Bonhoeffer wants to do is provide a structure and a rule for Christians to have life together again. And so when you read this chapter, um, if you have the book, um, is, is, it sounds like he's talking about almost like church um, Sundays. But we have no possibility of doing that over the course of our weeks. Silence plays a large role in this chapter as well, but one of the things that brought me to this book, I feel like I should say again for this season is is I'm aware of, I didn't say it in the sermon last week, or but I'm aware of the irony of talking about life together when we can't be together, um, uh, but I think that this can be a structure for us to grow up in. But I was, having, um, I was talking about Calvin's Institutes with another pastor this week, as you do. I'm sure you guys all have days like that where you pick up the institutes and, and go out and talk by the river. Um, and we are talking about our hopes for our church as we, we were um, uh, uh, sort of ending, winding down our discussion. One of the things he asked me is like, well, what's the hope for your church? Because I love asking people these questions so I can steal, uh, good artists steal. Um, bad artist copy. Um, but um, the, I hate when people ask me back because I'm like, oh, now you're going to steal from me, um, which is exactly the way God wants us to think about this. Um, that's not true. Um, but anyways, uh, he asked me, what do you want for your church? And I said, you know how in scripture that, that, that Jesus calls the church and the community of believers salt and light? And that's like contrast language for the world. I said, you know, it's, it's, I, I hate being the guy who answers back with the Bible. Like, well, my real dream is just for something Jesus said. And it's like, why would I ask you in the first place then? And so I said, more along the lines of what I hope for Defiance Church in a community that has many churches is, is that, is that we can become a kind of salt, uh, a particular kind of salt that has a taste and a flavor to it. And the, and the, the type of, of sodium I used was soy sauce um, in the conversation. I said, my hope is that in a world of, of plenty of salt and light churches, that Defiance Church can be like soy sauce, which is not going to be our new slogan anytime soon. But what I think I meant is that, that we might have a flavor that makes us stand out. We don't try and make a Christian of all kinds of stripe, But what defines Church is trying to do is take ourselves as seeds and place us in soil so that we grow up into a certain kind of thing. It's not just for us to be like, well, you go off in this corner and do this thing, and you go off in that corner and do this thing, and have all that. It's good to have churches like that, and they're often much bigger than our church too. But there's times, like with Bonhoeffer's community here in Life Together and other places in church history where people are called to sort of bring themselves into something more bound. Something more, um, and, and the ancient root word for religion, lagare, means to bind. Religion is this process of binding. To bind themselves into something. We often use the idea of, of a kurita. Cookie cutter, cookie cutter is a bad thing. Like, oh, it's just a cookie cutter, this, that thing. Um, and it's not a compliment. But what I think that that can mean positively for us is that our practice of faith together has a shape. It has a content. We know something of who we are and we can check in and talk and be around that. That the restoration of the church might come through this retrieval of practices to which we've long thrown off and bring them back to practicing them together. And in the Catholic church, there's many different ways you can bring these things on. You can join an order. You can become uh, an oblate of an order. You can sort of take on practices and these things. But in the Protestant church, uh, for rules of life, we pretty much don't have many. Many of them are more modern than this. But Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, serves as almost St. Benedict's rule for the Protestant church. As much as we may hope, although Bonhoeffer in his time was confused of, accused of trying to Catholicize the church as well but trying to make something where they can practice together. In the form of life that Bonhoeffer practices in this community, when you read his letters and papers from prison, it becomes clear that what he found here and what he practiced in community here together is the form of life that helps him survive a Nazi prison. Well, he doesn't survive. Help him have fruitful life in a Nazi prison is that he still prays in this way. He still orders his day in his way. He still practices in this way. That Bonhoeffer sort of found something in the structure of this community life that helped him. One of the reasons why I think this chapter is important about the community we can find together is that I remember the story of Richard Rohr. Uh, Some of you may have read his books. I'm not a huge fan. But he started this Center of Contemplation and Action in New Mexico. And his idea was we'd get Christians together who were active in action in the world and we'd spend half our time in contemplation and half our time discerning action. And as people started to show up, he said, oh my gosh, everybody's doing action. Nobody's doing contemplation. Nobody has time to pray. Nobody has time to worship, to gather, to sing songs together, to celebrate, to fast. All they have time to do is do, do, do. And so his community he started there became 90% more about spiritual disciplines, recovering life, recovering the ability to sort of come to Jesus in silence and to listen and to be able to read the word and pray again. And the other 10%, they actually talked about action. Now, to say we live in a world of action is hardly unique at all. But I think this chapter of Life Together to help us do is frame this day, our Sunday worship, but other days of our life in a goal-like way in which we can build structure into our life. Bonhoeffer begins this, this chapter with this ode to the day, that to rise in a new day, and you find this in the New Testament, wake, O sleeper, rise from the dead. Um, the raising in the Old Testament and the New Testament to a new day was a gift from God. God's mercies are new every morning. Zabonhofer says that while we see people in the New Testament and the Old Testament going out in the morning to pray, so it is for Christians, too, to have this morning time to sort of offer words of praise back to God. Now, I can guarantee I'm not alone in this, but in the silence of the morning, whatever silence there might be with two kids, um, The thing that I reach for is not a hymnal, not a copy of the Psalms or my Bible, but the cell phone that makes an alarm to awake me from the morning. We, when we arise, check our email. We check our text messages. We search for voicemails. What contact might I have missed during my sleep? During this time, I'm sure many of us are tempted to check the news. For some reason, my phone during this time was telling me how many new coronavirus cases Colorado was having each day when I woke up in the morning, and then it stopped. I, don't, I didn't turn it off. It just stopped doing it, which I was like this very, I don't know what, it's, what is happening that it stopped doing that. But we produce in this way, and, and this is one of these things, I talk about this often is that I'm an overslave to reading about productivity experts and very low on implementing the stuff, but I love reading about it. And, and almost everybody who talks about having a morning ritual of waking your day is that if you check your cell phone the first thing in the morning, you check your email the first thing in the morning, if you go to a computer the first thing in the morning, the terminal, the day that you will live will be set as reactive. You'll be responding to things from the moment you get up. And, and there's this new trick that I've learned, which isn't really relevant to this at all, but you can schedule your emails to come. So like, you know, and people are doing this as organizations to schedule their emails to come at 6 a.m. in the morning so that you think the other person is working despite the fact they wrote it at 10 o'clock at night. Um, This is the world we live in. And so what we do when we wake to our cell phones or our TVs or in some sense a newspaper, if you're still antiquated enough to get one of those, um, what you do is you begin to start your day in reactive to somebody else's days, demands, and goals. And so what Bonhoeffer starts with, without even reference to all the challenges we face in our world today, is that it's for us to wake in the morning and to offer praise to God. To you, our morning song of praise we offer. Now, I'm not lying to say this is a big challenge for me, but I'm I'm pretty sure I'm not alone in that. And what does it mean for us to resist the nature to grab our phone in the morning and to look for the God who's brought us into the safety of a new day? To begin in praise and to rise from that sleep which is goodness and seek first the kingdom of heaven. To seek first what God would have for us. This to me, if there's one thing to take away from this sermon, and probably from this chapter in the book, is how do we reclaim our mornings? Now, I work for you guys, but I don't think most of you would be that mad if I sent my text at 9 instead of 8 in response to your questions. But we live in this immediacy culture that thinks all those things need to get back to each other as fast as we can. But the Lord stands before us at the start of the new day. Bonhoeffer talks how creation began in darkness. The cross came at noonday, but the resurrection greets us in the morning light of each day. Which brings us to Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. But one of the things as he walks through this chapter is he sort of frames one day for what it might look like, the life together. And I'll, I'll do my best to walk through that as quickly and not make it boring. But he frames one day in a way that sort of the community can contemplate and act together. But before we get into that, I just want to talk about two um, Greek or, or, we'll call them Greek words, um, uh, that I'm sure I'll mispronounce from Aristotle. There's there's techne. And there's pronethis, pronesis. Carla? Okay. So when nobody can correct your pronunciation, it's correct. Um, There's these two words, and and pronethis typically means or is often translated as knowledge. And techne is more like uh, art or craft. What we've done in the Christian life today and in my own preaching and what we do when we gather is made it all... um, uh, episteme, uh, all knowledge. We just teach and talk. We try to get everything in your head. And, and, And we often do this with Paul's letters. We read the first half, but the second half, Paul's interested in making your life a craft. What Carla read for us are specific instructions on clothe yourself in Christ. Bear with one another. Forgive. We often, as Christians in the modern world, we get the head knowledge And we want to sort of dump that into people's brains. Um, That's often how we think of sharing the gospel, too. But to take and to put on Christ, to take on a character to sort of make this more about craft in life. You don't want to play these two off each other that so much they don't mean anything. But I think part of the challenge in, in reading this book and bringing it to us now is to see how in which the New Testament actually calls us into a specific kind of life. It's not just a life that's color, colored with new knowledge. It's a life that's colored with specific teachings. It's one that asks us to, to do everything as we do it for the Lord. It doesn't want you to just change your way of thinking, but the way in which you rise in the morning. And so the first thing that Bonhoeffer begins this chapter with is what I call Bonhoeffer's quiet time. Now, I did not know what a quiet time was until I went to college, which says a lot about the type of Christianity I grew up in, but I never really understood it either. People would tell me, well, what is it? Well, generally, just open your Bible to wherever you want, read for a little bit, and that frames your day. And I thought, That seems uh, good, but it also seems odd. Is there more information you could give me about this practice? And sometimes there were, and sometimes there weren't, but it never really, really stuck with me until I went to seminary and found different ways of adapting this practice to my life. But what Bonhoeffer does is he starts with that praise of adoration in the morning, and what he wants you to do in your house or in your community is bring people together during this time to offer praise and adoration first thing in the morning. The second thing he frames this time with, and if you've been following along with our morning prayer thing, is the Psalms. For Bonhoeffer, the Psalms make up the backbone of our Christian life, and they are the school in which we learn to pray. It's been a habit for my life. This is, it didn't come out of that time, although we all knew Billy Graham read one Psalm a day for his interactions with God and three Proverbs a day for his interaction with men. Um, therefore, it should be a pattern for all of us Um, amen that thus closes the sermon Um, but the role that the psalms plays in our Christian life we often forget I tried to bring this back in our sermon series in the fall but the psalms are where we learn to pray And Bonhoeffer wants to put the psalms for us on the lips of Christ in this chapter we pray them because he prayed them It is Jesus' prayer book, so therefore it becomes our prayer book. And one of the interesting parts of the chapter, he changes the way that this means we pray the Psalms of Innocence and the imprecatory Psalms. That if we pray them as the one who absorbed the wrath of God as the truly innocent one, if we pray them as if he is praying them, that brings us to a different place than if we're praying to smite our enemies. If we pray them in the character of Christ, But it teaches us to pray in the promises of God, Bonhoeffer says. It teaches us the form of prayer. It teaches us how we would language our concerns to God. And then it teaches us to pray as a community. First off, there are many people praying the Psalms throughout any given morning, and it connects us to the Christ in a sort of um, spiritual, mystical way, if you will. But also that many of the Psalms exist as communal prayers. They're more than one person bringing the concern to God. This praying the Psalms expands ourselves in the morning. Then he gets to the reading of Scripture. And he wants his, in. in if you read about the community and life together, in a biography of Bonhoeffer, he sort of advises the brothers, um, the brethren, to sort of take one passage of scripture for the week and turn it over inside themselves each morning, not for the purpose of finding something new or for making something uh, teachable out of it, but just for the purpose of, of sort of bringing themselves to one thought each day during the week. This was one of the things that the brothers protested the most. To spend 30 minutes in silence with a short piece of Scripture was something they weren't uh, acclimated to. But it's something that Bonhoeffer found great solace in then and finds great solace in prison. And to sort of ask how God is speaking to you through this passage. But he also has room for much longer readings of Scripture. Reading Scripture together out loud. And he wants them to know Scripture because it's how we know our own story. So this was never made clear to me about the quiet time when I taught about it. was taught about it, is that when we read the Bible, we learn what the story is of the people of God. It's not just information. It's not just a devotional moment. It's not just checking a box. But you're finding out where you came from and where you are going and finding out how to live craftfully in the present, to live artfully in the present. It sets us up in a different way. He begins to move towards singing together. We, we did a study a long time ago that, um, that began uh, with this question. Well, Albert Borgman asks this question, which is the most important thing of his grad students, he says, will be to decide if you're going to have a TV, that's one of the most important questions you'll ask in your life. And if you are, where you're going to put it is the second most important question. There was a joke that we learned from the monk when we went through the study that said, you know, the best thing you could do today is go out, buy a gun, shoot your TV, and donate the gun for scrap metal, and you'll have done two good acts that day, Um, which I thought was comically true. Now, I have a TV, and I'm not sure people should get rid of their TVs, but TVs, speakers, er, instruments, and car audio take away the singing and entertaining together. Borgman talks about this a lot, is that we used to come together and put instruments and play. There used to be pianos in living rooms, not televisions. When you move to a world dictated by screens, you lose the ability to to make together something good. It's not uncommon, but you'll read even during the Civil War, that they would enact Shakespeare plays together. Shakespeare has been relegated to the academy today, so there's no way anybody's doing that in their household, although Josiah has a reading he can do for us, I believe, next Sunday. Um, um, But we sort of lose this ability to sing together, to make music together, to play together. Bonhoeffer wants them to reclaim the singing together in the morning and then to offer up prayer for the day. This is how Bonhoeffer begins his day, and he thinks it's a good way for the Christian household to begin their day. Next, he talks about breaking bread together. And that in each meal we have, he sees that we celebrate that God rested on the seventh day. And that in breaking bread together, we sort of see ourselves, and he takes the phrase from the Lord's Prayer, our daily bread, in this community of people who shares bread. That God has brought us into the rest of the day. The next passage he brings us to is the workday. He connects the workday to what it means to pray without ceasing. He says, that the work brings us in the places of the tangible world. And we move from this sort of relationship from I to God to this relationship to things around us. But it's through prayer that we gain the proper relationship to the things around us. And a phrase that I'll, I'll think about for a long time, I don't know if I have much to say about it today, is he says, without labor, without work, prayer isn't prayer. And without prayer, work isn't work that there's this connection between our work and our prayers that draw us into the tangible things. The, uh, the St. Benedicts have this phrase. Carly, you probably know this one if you can help me. Ora et labora, prayer and work. The Benedictines see their community as one bound together in prayer and work. It's so a Latin you never took. Uh, um, Ora et labora to pray and to work together. And this brings us into the thing. Now, this is, um, I think, interesting for us because many of us don't see our prayer as our work or our work as our prayer. And yet, for the work of the world to go on, for food to be made, for colleges to run, for schools to be taught, there needs to be people who draw themselves into this work so that we can exist in ways Bonhoeffer does not see the workday as the enemy of the spiritual life. Now, this, I think, is the most pivotal point here is that we often play our, I pray, I do my morning thing, I go to work, I come home. But what Christianity is about is the unity of your life. It doesn't want you to play your work off your Bible reading time. It doesn't want you to say, oh, I'm doing this, and now I let that aside. But to to, to sort of have the art, the edges of the the ink, bleed into each other is the challenge of the Christian life. How to have your prayers go into that. He talks about the midday break as another time in which we get to rest in God. And that evening is the place for us time to heal division. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Again, we live such distant lives so far apart uh, to seek reconciliation in the evening is far, although we do have phones and technology for that. But he calls the people into the evening to start to rest again and to go to their prayer um, and sleep and to wait the glories of a new day. This is sort of the structure of life he sees for the day together. The next chapter is about the day alone. But I think the challenge for us is what does it mean to frame our days as gifts of a gracious God who comes near to us in the morning, who we sing praises to, who we study and learn our story from, who we offer prayers to, and that as we work, we fuse that with our prayers together for the sake of the world. and Then we go to the rest that God has for us. Let us pray. God, you have called your church, this church, in a time and a place for a reason. What does it mean for us to adopt a structure of life together? A way of knowing and seeing the spiritual life that we are bound together more than just our individual practices, but in a community community which you've called to be salt and light in the world. May we through this learn to live in praise of you. And may that praise resound throughout creation. May I ask all this in your holy name. Amen.
0: Christ, the sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm. When the winds of doubt blow through me, and my sails have all been torn in the suffering, in the sorrow, when my sea hopes are few I will hold fast to the anchor it shall never be removed Christ the sure and steady anchor while the tempest rages on when temptation claims the it seems the night as one deeper still than goes the.
3: Now is our time of confession together, in which we confess the ways in which we let our days fall away, and yet it is God who redeems time. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In humility and faith, let us confess our sins to God. so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Hear the good news. Who is in a position to condemn? Only Christ. And Christ died for us. Christ rose for us. Christ reigns in power for us. Christ prays for us. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old life has gone, and a new life has begun. Know that you are forgiven, and be at peace. Amen. Now, together we confess the faith together in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord
0: we are.
3: time of offering um, but I just want to thank you all who have given digitally and mail checks and everything during this time it's been a great gift um, and it seems as if it's not something we have to worry about during this time which is also a gift that you guys are are providing in a way that resets those anxieties but now is our time of responding and thanksgiving and sharing so let us pray together Holy God, you have called us to follow in the way of your risen Son and to care for those who are our companions, not with words of comfort, but acts of love, seeking to be true friends of all. We offer our prayers on behalf of the church and the world. God, we pray that this time disease, sickness, pestilence, and trial would come to an end quickly for us. We pray for those with and caring for those who have this current virus. We also pray for those whom have other sicknesses and other diseases. Some with non-essential treatment and need of more, and some in hospitals and homes that you would be near to them. God, we pray for Kim's friend, Jan, who went home to be with Jesus this week. and we pray for her two sons in their early 30s and their grandkids as well, that they may receive your comfort and the church's comfort during this time. We pray for the greeners, Jonathan and Emily, as this week they buried his grandfather. We pray for all those losing loved ones during this time and unable to take part of the rituals of mourning. Whether that be funerals or big meals together or celebrations of life, whatever they are, the loss of the rituals of mourning is a hard one. We pray that you would be near to those people. We also pray for those using, losing rituals of celebration. Graduations, proms, weddings. May we find time to celebrate those people in our lives. May your goodness come to those. And we give thanks for the glories of today. We give thanks for your life and your son we give you thanks for the ability we have to structure a life together. God, in the midst of so much trial, you enable our lips to speak thanksgiving and praise. So we close with the prayer that you taught us to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.